Well, the Bible is a many-faceted book. It tells us about God, who he is, what he's uh, like. It tells us uh, many things about what it means for us as individuals and together to be related to him. And it's a book that announces the gospel actually on every page and summons us as Christ followers uh, in uh, to his mission. It's a theological, pastoral, and evangelism book. And if you miss any one of these aspects, you've really lost a great deal. Uh, please join me as I uh, pray for us, and then I'll have you uh, stand. Almighty God, merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and ask you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the heat of persecution nor the thorns of care in, for this life choke it out. As good seed may it produce 30, 60, 100 fold in our lives as you intend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, would you come to full attention and stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. We are in Acts 9, and we're going to read from verses 32 to the end of the chapter. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since uh, Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with him. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and she, excuse me, he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You may be seated. Our world is marked by borders, boundaries, and walls. In this past week, the world has waited anxiously while watching the border of Ukraine. And sadly, we've seen the Russian armed forces cross that 
uh, border. In the 20th century, perhaps the most famous wall that uh, was built and has come down was in Berlin. This wall separated not just East and West Berlin, but two different ways of life, two economic and political systems. However, not all borders appear on maps. Languages, race, religion, culture, gender, and age can divide neighborhoods, cities, and states. But they can also bind people uh, together across vast distances. Ex uh, patriots everywhere feel a connection and a kinship uh, to their homelands, as many Ukrainians here uh, do, and some have traveled to help uh, defend their nation. In the Bible, one border has dwarfed all the others in importance. It's the boundary between those who loyally serve uh, and obey God and un the unbelieving people who are in rebellion against him. And through many centuries, that boundary corresponded uh, with the line that marked Israel from the other nations. To be an Israelite uh, was to be in covenant with God, and to be a Gentile was to be outside uh, of covenant with God and his promises. There were, of course, a few exceptions, uh, Rahab and uh, Ruth, but this broad generalization uh, holds. The border was marked off with circumcision, dietary restrictions, sacrifices, you know, certain uh, feast days, and of course, every week observing rest on Saturday. The New Testament describes this border as the dividing wall of hostility. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says that Jesus' death broke down this wall. The fall of this wall is actually one of the big stories in the book of Acts. And it stretches across seven uh, chapters. And Luke tells in this story how it is that the church caught up with what Jesus accomplished on the cross and began a new stage in God's plan to bring about the future, a new humanity united under the headship of Jesus, where the old borders are gone. This is God's future for the world, for humanity, and the place that this is being worked out. His workshop to create this new humanity, uh, this new future, and this new humanity is the church. Not just the global church, but in the local church. So I want to invite you this morning to step back and appreciate just how it is that Luke, who's researched his account, recounts what God has done. And he skillfully tells this uh, in a way so that we might be prepared as readers uh, for this development. Now, the two most significant uh, narratives, two of the most, not the most, but two of the most in the book of Acts are the conversion of Saul, which we looked at last week, and the conversion of Cornelius, which is coming uh, next week. Saul is God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the nations, and Cornelius and his household are the first Gentiles to embrace the gospel. Why does Luke break up 
this which would be naturally connected with these two stories of healings. There's a flow here, and he interrupts it. Is it just random? Well, it's not. It's anything but random. These two healings are a bridge. These healings are a bridge uh, between the conversion of Paul and the conversion of uh, Cornelius. Just how is that? Well, the healings reintroduce Peter, who's been missing since chapter uh, 5. And Peter is the apostle who will officially open the mission to the Gentiles. He punches the first hole through the dividing wall of hostility. You see, he's the representative of the mother church in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christian church. Put the accent on Jewish. They were first and foremost culturally uh, Jewish. And Peter, who's kept kosher his whole life, would have the credibility to do this. If you want a modern parallel, it could only have been someone who was strongly anti-communist and a military hawk like Richard Nixon who could have begun the process of normalizing relationships between our country and what was commonly known in that day as communist China. And Luke shows us the way that Peter and the church are being prepared for Cornelius' conversion to Christ. And so this sermon's going to look a little different than, than many of the sermons I've preached. And so let me give you the outline. I'm going to take extra time to reconnect the parts for you along the way. God makes a geographic preparation. He moves Peter from Jerusalem all the way to Caesar town. That's what Caesarea means, just colloquially. He takes him from Jerusalem to Caesar town. He makes a theological preparation with the priority of the deeds of love that reveal the love of God for people. And he makes a thematic preparation through these verbal uh, links to show us the change that God must do in Peter. God has to soften Peter up to get him ready for a visit to Cornelius in his pioneering role, which otherwise he probably would have completely resisted. You know what it is to soften somebody up. Perhaps you want to approach, if you're married, a spouse or a friend, and you, you, know, you choose the time and the place, you, you set the mood. Well, that's what God's doing here. He's setting the stage so that Peter will be receptive. Let me just show you how this happens. God makes a geographic preparation. Peter's traveling. He's set uh, off, uh, and God has sent him to visit the churches to do what we might call pastoral visitation. And as he travels, he comes to the town of Lydda, which is between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean uh, coast. He's headed east, and there he encounters a man named Aeneas who's been a paralytic a long time. And Peter, in a manner very similar to Jesus, calls to him, rise and make your bed. Peter is following Jesus' example, and the healing is done in Jesus' name, and the healing is instantaneous. And news of this 
spreads fast, as you might expect. And a large number of people, both in Lydda and Sharon, come to Christ. Now, Jesus is acting through uh, Peter. We saw this at the very beginning, the way that Luke uh, crafts uh, the very first sentence in introducing uh, the second half of uh, this two-volume book, Luke and Acts. He writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, which is the Gospel of Luke, I have uh, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And it implies that here in this second book, Jesus is continuing to do and teach. But this time Jesus is acting through the church and especially prominently through the apostles, which is why we call it the Acts of the Apostles. This healing, as well as all the other miracles in the book of Acts, are signs of Jesus' salvation. Jesus himself makes this connection, and we see it in in Luke 5, where he healed a paralytic. A crippled man's friends uh, brought him to Jesus. Actually, they opened a roof. I always wonder what the owner of the house thought about uh, what was happening to his uh, home. And they lowered him down in the room where Jesus was teaching. And it was just impossible to miss the nature of the request. And their faith is very much on display. They believe that Jesus can do this. But instead of healing the man, Jesus announces that his sins are forgiven. And the most religious people in the room are shocked. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And Jesus perceives their thoughts. Apparently, they didn't say this out loud. And he says, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But to show you that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive, I say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he does. This healing is a sign of the salvation that comes in believing uh, the gospel. And uh, the resuscitation of Dorcas uh, of Dorcas's corpse is also a sign of salvation. She is resurrected, but it's temporary, but it's a sign that points forward to the final resurrection and the restoration of all things. These two healings point to, illustrate, and anticipate the removal of sin and guilt and all the effects of the fall, including illness and death. These sign miracles authenticate the messenger and his message. And so Jesus' healings in the Gospels authenticate that he was sent by God and his uh, claims to be divine are true and that in fact he is the way to experience salvation. And the healing of Aeneas likewise validates Peter as Christ's apostle who has the message of salvation. And so it is that many people respond to the gospel message because of these healings. Now, I just want to say as an aside, there's an implication here that uh, we need to be reminded of. In fact, it was built into our confession of sin this morning, and it's this, that the fullness of what Jesus has achieved for our salvation is not yet ours. We only have part of it. We do have new life. 
we have forgiveness. Uh, we have a restored relationship uh, with God. We're beginning to experience uh, healing in many, many dimensions. But the fullness of the restoring of all things uh, has not come and will not come until Christ returns again. And this means we live with the already of some of what Christ has done for us, and yet we wait because all of it is not yet ours. And this requires patience of us. Patience in the midst of evil. And I don't know about you, but I'm deeply grieved by what's happened in Ukraine. I'm not surprised by it. I've been a student of Russian and Soviet history since high school. Um, But it grieves me. It saddens me deeply. It makes me long uh, for the coming of Christ. And it happens when evil touches your life or mine. When illness comes, when the doctor says some horrible condition is yours and it's incurable, or you have the death of someone who matters to you, or whatever loss you experience in this life. God's patience means we must wait as he mercifully opens the door to repentance open to those who've rebelled uh, against him. Luke wants us to notice here, Peter moves to Lydda, which is Jewish, to Joppa, which is a mixture of Jew and Gentile right on the coast of the Mediterranean, and then north to Caesar town, which is Roman. And this geographic uh, preparation takes place as Peter's uh, traveling. He is urgently summoned to go to Joppa. And Peter goes, and it's going to be while he's in Joppa that he will once again be urgently summoned uh, to see someone else, Cornelius. And uh, Luke makes a point of ending the healings by telling us that Simon stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, it's fairly unusual in the Bible to get detailed descriptions like that of people and their occupations. And uh, It's significant. The details matter here. Now, being a tanner was a profession that was despised both by sophisticated Greeks as well as Jews. Now, in the first uh, church I served, we had a taxidermist. And if you've ever been to the shed that a taxidermist works in, you'll immediately know why. For you boys and girls who don't know what that is, it's someone who takes uh, a hunter's dead animal and mounts uh, the head or even the whole body uh, for a trophy. It's the smell. It's an overpowering smell to stand in the taxidermist's workplace. And the tanner works with dead animals. And tanners used urine as a part of the curing uh, process. And the smell was noxious. Um, And so the trade was practiced outdoors and near water. It's not by coincidence that Simon's home uh, is there on the, the coast by the sea. 
But the stench wouldn't be the only thing that would be off-putting about a tanner's home. A Jew would be concerned about ritual purity. Dead animals and dead bodies were ritually unclean. And so one of the boundary markers uh, is that Simon very likely was ritually unclean much of the time because of his work. And so geographically, Joppa's on the edge of Judah. It's a Gentile town, and he's staying with a man who actually, Peter doesn't seem to be troubled by this, a man who's probably often, if not all the time, actually ritually unclean. Next, Peter will be summoned by Cornelius and commanded by God to go to that Roman town, Caesar town. And being in Joppa places Peter both geographically and theologically on a boundary. In other words, he's sitting on top of the wall of hostility. He's right there. He's sitting on it. And there's another link here. It's, it's a theological link, and it's very deliberately set out so you can see this, this connection between Dorcas and Cornelius. They are both known for their care, the poor. When Cornelius is introduced in chapter 10, in the second verse, we're told he's devout, he's God-fearing, and he's one who gives alms generously to people. That means he cared for the poor. He showed charity. He was generous in the way he cared for the poor. And Dorcas also it displays this charity. This is love, practical love being extended. And it's also practical theology. Now, uh, Peter, uh, once again, oops, I've, I've missed something. You see, this is what happens when you shuffle your pages. So let me add this because it's, it's really, really important. I want to go back and tell you a little bit about Dorcas and Tabitha. So Dorcas and Tabitha are both, are, they're just Greek and Hebrew names, and they mean gazelle. But Tabitha, we're told, is a disciple, which is a word that occurs more than 100 times in the New Testament. But she's the only woman who gets the feminine form of the word disciple in the entire New Testament. And what Luke is telling us by this is he wants us to see that she embodies what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a very important way. See, she was not only a sound seamstress, but she weaved mercy uh, into all her good works. So much so that when she's uh, mourned, she's mourned as one who was full of good works and acts of charity. In other words, that's going to be chiseled on her tombstone. Full of good works and acts of of charity. That was her reputation. And her death devastated the widows in Joppa, who were among the poorest and most vulnerable uh, people in those days. Tabitha cared for them. She cared for the poor. And no doubt all of this was relayed by these two men who went and found uh, Peter. Peter is moved. And if you, as a reader, would allow yourself to identify with these mourning women, we would be moved as well by these grieving widows. Tabitha Dorcas is doing the deeds prescribed by uh, Jesus. 
And as I mentioned, Cornelius likewise is doing these deeds. There's a connection. It's a theological link. It's the practical theology of love. Now, Peter, in a, in a manner uh, very similar to what uh, Jesus does, uh, uh, goes into the room. He clears it of all these widows. Uh, he gets down on his knees and asks God uh, to raise her from the dead. And he uses almost exactly the same language when he says to the little girls, only one letter uh, difference in Aramaic, uh, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes and he helps her up and the widows are, are made uh, glad. And of course, word spread quickly. These are not things that happen every day. Word and deed are linked once again. You see, what Luke is showing us here, he's doing it again and again in this book, is that, the, that Tabitha's being raised from the dead signifies that the word concerning Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, will make practical love possible and real or to use the old word charity. He will nurture it. The, the life of the word in his people means that poverty and injustice, the wounds of orphans and widows, will heal. And the point of this practical love is it's just not peripheral to the gospel. They're connected. Word and deed are profoundly uh, connected. And admittedly, showing charity, caring for the poor, is hard work. It's difficult work. And often these two ministries, that of the word and the ministry of mercy or practical love, are divided. In churches that have a liberal uh, bent in their theology, it's often mercy and charity uh, and helping the poor is prioritized or even completely eclipses the ministry of the word. Uh, of evangelism, of witness and mission. But often the opposite happens in conservative uh, churches where the ministry of word is held up and this is actually neglected. Church, don't miss this. When Peter unites these widows with Tabitha uh, and restores to them their source of support, showing them that she was alive, he turns the community members into public witnesses for the objective reality of the miracle. The report of their miracle goes forth from them and naturally it gives them the opportunity to speak about the saving power of Christ revealed in the gospel. You see, People becoming whole and the gospel growing and spreading, they go together. Church, take this to heart. You know, Peter needs this theological uh, preparation to see charity and love. God has a love for all people because they are his creatures. And so, God so loved the world. And Peter needs to see this, that these Gentile people he's been taught uh, from childhood to despise 
and to view as outsiders and not possibly the object of God's love and care that God is actually wanting to demonstrate his love to them. Now, dear church, this is a special season uh, to identify men who are called to serve as deacons. It is this group of people whom in our practice of church government are entrusted with leading, nurturing, modeling, and encouraging mercy ministry. Now, this ministry doesn't rest on them alone. It's not all on them to see that this is done. No, our book of church order is completely clear about this. Deacons are encouraged to involve others in this ministry. And this is the day. Today is the day to nominate uh, more deacons. And if the West, if the church in the West is going to see the gospel grow in its impact and reach more people and reach resistant uh, people, the churches that love the word and hold high the gospel must fully recover the ministry of practical love, of deed and mercy ministry. This is the New Testament pattern. This is what Luke's signaling. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. And we see the apostles doing and teaching. We see Peter... Christ through Peter, healing, acts of miracles, deeds of love, and we see the gospel going forth in greater and greater response to it. And fortunately, I can just tell you, you're in a wonderful denomination, the PCA, because it is a a wonderful uh, uh, branch called Mission to North America that has amazing resources and experience and can help any church of any size take a step forward in this ministry area. Well, we've seen uh, God preparing Peter geographically as he's moved him. We see God preparing uh, Peter theologically with the importance of practical love. But the last thing we need to see is God's preparation of Peter thematically. And it's seen in the verbal links. And so pay close attention to what I'm going to say. I'm not going to ask you to look at these four verses together. But Aeneas and Tabithy are commanded to get up. Or the ESV uses the word rise. Uh, from their places of brokenness and death, with the result that others turn and believe in Jesus. They're commanded to get up from their places of brokenness and death. And the result is that other people turn to Christ in faith. And Luke wants us to see the link to chapter 10, where in a similar way, in the vision, Peter is commanded in verse 13 and verse 20 to get up or as the ESV puts it, to rise. Peter gets up and he's healed of his closed-mindedness so that others might come to know the good news that Jesus is Lord of all. You see, it had never occurred to Peter, even though he saw all these things that Jesus had done, even though he'd heard Jesus himself uh, abolish uh, the kosher laws related to food. 
Even though he'd seen Jesus uh, uh, act on behalf of the Syrophoenician uh, woman and found him talking at the uh, woman at the well in Samaria, he just did not grasp that the love of God and the gospel was intended uh, for all people uh, to hear. And so these words, the word rise, four times in verse 34, verse 40 of chapter 9, verse 13, and verse 20 of chapter 10, when Ananias and Dorcas and Peter rise, they're healed. And as a result, those who wouldn't have heard the gospel hear it and receive new life. The healing of forgiveness of their sin, and they're raised from spiritual death to life. That's what those healings picture, anticipate. And once Peter is healed, once he gets up, he can walk into God's plan. See, Peter is the guy that God has chosen to punch the first hole in the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. It was hard for the church to come to terms with this. The church struggles with this in the book of Acts. Uh, But the gospel is to break down all the walls of human rebellion, of pride that we have erected. And Peter is going to have to become flexible in his thinking. Now, he's going to have to think in a new way. He becomes flexible in his travel plans. We don't know what Peter had planned while he was in Lydda. But we can be pretty sure it wasn't to go to Joppa. But he does. He goes because he's urgently asked to go. He's appealed to go. Uh, because of the the loss these women have incurred. And, you know, when Peter's in Joppa, maybe he's, you know, having a beach vacation. I don't know. Wouldn't have been quite a resort being in the house of a tanner. But, you know, there's just no indication that he was planning to visit Caesarea. He's flexible. Regardless of what he'd planned, he was willing to shift gears in response to God's leadership, and he moved on the spur of the moment. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm really not that flexible. I don't like to change gears in the middle of the day. I plan my day out. Every morning I plan my day out. Usually takes a page. It's all those things I want to get done. And I really like the predictability of working down that plan. I like to stay in control. I want my day to unfold as I planned. You see, I don't see my spontaneity deficit, which is significant, <laughs> um, as really like a flaw or a weakness. It, it just serves me so well. I get done what I want to uh, get done. But it means that sometimes, and probably more often than I realize, I've missed an opportunity to be a part of what God is actually doing because I'm inflexible. I've told myself these are my boundaries. And, you know, sometimes when someone uh, has a need, instead of responding to it, I just hold back and say, that's not, you know, that's not for me. Um, uh, I don't always run to the side of everybody who has a has someone who they know who's in the hospital. I just haven't done that. I say, my flock's my responsibility. This is where my energies need to go, and somebody else can do that. And I'm not saying that's not true, but, 
but, but I can be really inflexible. And I don't know if you struggle with that, but see, Peter needed to get flexible to see that the wall of hostility, a religious wall that was marked by cultural activities, needed to come down. And those two things, the cultural expression of those boundaries in the religion were so intertwined in the minds of the Jewish church that it was just impossible for them to conceive that when a Gentile became a Christian, they didn't have to also become fully Jewish. And there really was no difference between being culturally and religiously a Jew, as we might say today. These were one and the same things. And so the church struggled uh, mightily and will in the book of Acts with that. You see, churches too can exist in a similar inflexibility. In the world of helping churches uh, grow and become strong, there's a saying. Maybe you've heard it. It's called the seven last words of the church. It goes like this. We've never done it that way before. Now, of course, every church that says that always has a reason why they've never done it that way before and why they want to stick with their way of doing things. But you see, that's not how God interacts with the church in the New Testament. God moves them, he's moved them several times already to places they did not want to go, they did not anticipate going, sometimes He used persecution. Sometimes he used visions. Sometimes he orchestrates a whole set of events to position someone so that they're ready to respond to a call. Peter doesn't fully get what God's up to until he's in the home of Cornelius with a crowd who wants to hear the message that he will bring. And so I ask you, church, and you as individuals, are you flexible? Are you willing to respond to God? Are you open to what he might call you to do next? You see, God does have a future for his church. Bob Inc., the famous theologian, put it this way. The image of God is so much so much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being that however richly gifted that human being may be, it can only be somewhat unfolded in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. In other words, what he's saying is that I don't fully, as an individual, reflect the totality of what it means to be in the image of God. Man and woman together in marriage do not fully capture that. We do not as a group. It's going to take the whole of redeemed humanity uh, to image that. He goes on and says it this way. Only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head spread out over the whole earth as a prophet proclaiming the truth of God as a priest dedicating itself to God, as a ruler controlling the earth and the whole creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. And this is what John sees. 
After this, I, John, looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. That is God's future and may we long for it and welcome it and desire to be a part of it, for it most certainly shall come to pass. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, be pleased uh, to make us supple in your hands, together and individually responsive to you. Enable us to live uh, and lean in uh, to your future. And open our hearts and minds with the love we've seen in Christ, to demonstrate such love to others, that the word of the gospel might go forth with power, reaching people otherwise it would not. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.